The following audio is from our sermon series titled, The Whole Story, Genesis to Revelation. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Well, hey, my name is uh, Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here at Harvest City. And uh, This morning, uh, before we get started, I want to hit on a little bit uh, of current events, okay? So the first one is, uh, found out yesterday uh, that a church in Iowa City burned down this week, y'all. Uh, it's actually really horrible news. Um, uh, yesterday, uh, Mike and Kyle and I, uh, the elders were interacting around this and uh, just said, man, I really want to bring this up because we would love it uh, if you all are connected in any way relationally to someone at Iowa City Church of Christ. Uh, we would love to reach out relationally. You know, it's kind of like making a cold call is one thing to be like, hey, we want to support you and love you, but we would love to re- reach out relationally if that's possible before making a cold call, uh, just to even offer our space as a space that they could use uh, to worship. Because I think this morning, what we read, at least in the newspaper, is that they're going to have a prayer service in their parking lot uh, because their church burned down yesterday morning. Uh, and so uh, that first, and we want to take a moment here uh, to be able to pray for them. Uh, but then second, uh, you know, y'all probably, uh, if, you're, uh, if you don't live under a rock, you probably know that there's even bigger uh, current events happening in our country this week uh, in the Supreme Court overturning uh, Roe versus Wade. And we just want to acknowledge uh, that this affects uh, some people very differently than others in our community. Right? There's some that are celebrating, uh, and there's others uh, that are probably grieving right now as a result of this and as a result of the complexity of this issue. So uh, our, um, our denomination, right? we're dual affiliated, we're an Acts 29 EFCA church. The EFCA, Evangelical Free Church of America, put out this statement this week that re- said, this ruling reminds us of the sanctity of life. And I grabbed this, uh, this section because I thought it communicated really well. It says, as God's word reveals, all human life at whatever stage of development from conception to death, at whatever socioeconomic status, and at whatever level of physical or intellectual capability, all human life is sacred because all human beings are created in God's image. Even when his image has been corrupted by our sin, every human being is still worthy of honor and respect. There is nothing more valuable in all of creation than human life, y'all. So I was just having this conversation with a friend yesterday. Uh, I think the greatest uh, way that we could step up in light of this decision in our country is that we would live with that high and incredible value on human life in every interaction that we have. That we wouldn't just think this way towards, uh, right, like those that are not yet born, but we would think this way toward each and every person in this world. Right, That if we would live out that value in all of life, I think so much more uh, would be done in accordance with the way that God wants us to live. And so no, this means that no matter our political beliefs, right, because of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the church in our country is going to need to show incredible compassion for pregnant mothers, their unborn children, and their families. Right, That means it's going to take more of our resources. It's going to take more of our time and more of our care to actually come alongside and live, to be a blessing the way that God has called us to uh, in our community, not less 
as a result of this. And so our hope is that Harvest City can be a place where the gospel rallies us together to love our community the way that Christ loves us. So uh, no matter if you're on uh, the side of celebration this morning or the side of grieving, we hope that this can be a church where we center on the gospel and we love one another. Amen? That's one of the reasons we planted this church, y'all, is to be a church where people uh, all across the map uh, could find hope and life in Jesus. So we're going to be headed to Isaiah 52 and 53 this morning. Uh, that's on page 355 in the Bibles underneath your chairs. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight really quickly as we talk background to get in our whole story series. We're going from Genesis to Revelation, uh, how great it is to be a part of a church uh, that has uh, elders that so wisely handle the word of God, right? In 1 Timothy, it talks about being a man who rightly handles the word of truth. And uh, I felt like uh, Kyle and Mike both did that to the glory of God the last couple of weeks. I was super encouraged to sit under their preaching. And so this morning, as we continue in that series, Isaiah 52 and 53 is where we land, uh, because as you will see, uh, Isaiah is quite representative of the major prophets, okay? There's minor prophets. You can tell by the length of the books, usually. The major ones are like 50-plus chapters, y'all. And so this is a big one. Uh, And uh, so we're going to find ourselves there because it's also filled with good news for sinners like you and me. And so over the last couple of weeks, right, Kyle and then Mike preached through 1 Kings and then uh, some of 2 Kings. And this is the time period in which the transition happened from, okay, Saul, David, Solomon. They ruled over the 12 tribes of Israel as one kingdom, okay? And then basically what we know from there on in the, New, in the Old Testament is that then kings ruled over a divided kingdom, okay? And the kingdom got divided because after Solomon, uh, you know, Kyle was talking about Solomon building the temple, uh, and, and he talked about him being a super wise man because that's the gift that he asked for from God, and God gave him that gift of wisdom. Well, uh, he didn't ask for it for his son, okay? Because as soon as his son takes over, he's got this proposition. He's like, well, should we put this heavy burden of serving and building on uh, our people still, or should we lighten the load for them? And he decides to take his cues from these punks that are about his age, and that's who he asks for for wisdom instead of following the wise wisdom of the counselors that Solomon had around him. And so uh, he actually puts an even heavier burden on God's people. Uh, it divides divides his people into two kingdoms. And that then brought about this season uh, in which God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to rebuke and exhort and admonish and warn his people. And so this morning, even though God's people weren't very good at listening, hopefully we can tune in to his prophets. Because this morning, we turn to Isaiah, who is one of those prophets that God sent. You see, Isaiah prophesied specifically, if you're tuning into the kings, right, and trying to get right with what names overlap with what in the prophets. Uh, he prophesied during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah over Judah. So there's a few reasons that we're going to look at Isaiah this morning. First uh, and most significant, it's because this is what Sally Lloyd-Jones chose in the Jesus Storybook Bible, okay? And so we're going to keep challenging you to follow along with this series in a kid's Bible because we think this is one of the best resources on the planet Earth in order to understand God's Word in a gospel-centered way. So you can flip open to that one uh, and find how, how she talks about this letter of Isaiah 
So that's one of the reasons we're doing this. Second, uh, Isaiah is one of the major prophets, like I said, as opposed to the minor prophets. And he's a great example of all of them. So uh, we're just tuning into this part rather than Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And then third, in Isaiah, we see some of the most clear prophecies about the Messiah. And these that we're going to look at this morning were written around 700 years before Jesus was born. But you will see they are written with crystal clear clarity about the coming Messiah. So if you have been following along in the Jesus Storybook Bible, maybe you read ahead or maybe you've got a little one and you read it way too often, right? Which maybe isn't even too often. It's just a good thing, okay? Uh, that uh, Isaiah's name, you know, means God to the rescue. So I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones speaks about Isaiah's role in the grand story of redemption. This is what she says. She says, Isaiah's job was to listen to God and then tell people what he heard. And then she goes on to say, this is the message that God gave Isaiah. She says, it was like a letter God wrote to his children. But before we get into anything that was written in this letter, I think we should talk about one thing. Prophets are God's messengers, and if they are God's messengers, then how in the heck do we go about verifying if they were really sent by God and if they really said what God intended for them to say? right? In other words, how in the heck do we verify that these messengers have been sent by God and that they're speaking what they heard from God? Well, along these lines, I heard this phenomenal illustration from J.D. Greer that I am just going to cut and paste right here for you guys, okay? Uh, It comes from the CIA. So he says, when the CIA gives a double agent a way to identify themselves uh, to the U.S., there's usually several layers of identification involved. So there's no chance that they get the wrong person. For example, right? So say a Soviet double agent who fled to Mexico wants to uh, connect back to the U.S. So he has to come contact the U.S. Embassy, and he's given six, uh, not not two, that's two, (laughs) six, okay? Here we go. Six prearranged signs to identify himself so that there were no possibility of misidentification. Check this out. So when in Mexico City... He was one to write a letter to the secretary signing his name as I. Jackson. Then after three days, here's the second one, he was to go to the Plaza de Colon in Mexico City. And third, here's the third one, he was to stand before the statue of Columbus. Fourth, he was to place his middle finger, I'm not sure what that looked like, uh, in a guidebook. When he was approached, then here's the fifth one, he was to say this was a magnificent statue. And sixth, Despite his Russian accent, uh, he was to say that he was only visiting from Oklahoma. You see, when it comes to verifying God's messengers, the prophets, uh, there aren't these six steps that they have to go through and all these things that they have to do. We actually already looked at one passage this week that sheds light on this process. Not this week, sorry, this year. Uh, when we talked about Moses as the true and, uh, Jesus as the true and better Moses, Deuteronomy 18 told us a little bit about prophetic fulfillment. Okay, I'm going to just read remind us from verse 21 to 22 it says and if you say in your heart how may we know the word that the lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the lord if the word does not come to pass or come true that is a word that the lord has not spoken the prophet has spoken it presumptuously you need not be afraid of him 
Church, here's the crazy thing, okay? The Bible includes 322 direct prophecies about the coming Messiah to give us extraordinary, you might say extraordinary reasons to believe the good news of the gospel. And the Jesus Storybook Bible hits on a ton of them from Isaiah. This morning, we're going to zero in on chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah, where we find what some theologians have called the fifth gospel, because it was so full of extraordinary reasons to believe in this Messiah. This morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear, because God has given us extraordinary reasons to believe the gospel. We must willingly and humbly live out the gospel for our good and for God's glory. My title for today's sermon is The Verified Message of the Prophet, because this came to pass, y'all. So here we go. We're going to be looking in Isaiah 52, uh, 13 to 53, 12. If you want to pull out the Bibles underneath your chairs, uh, you want to pull up an app on your phone uh, to read the Bible, you want to pull it up or just follow along up here, all of that is acceptable to me. My heart and my prayer, though, is that we would come under the Bible this morning and not stand over it. So if you'd follow along with me, here we go. Isaiah 52, 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and esteemed him not. And here's the heart of the passage. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with all his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Y'all, as we look together at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, I want to help each of us see a couple of extraordinary reasons to believe. The first is that 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah wrote clearly of the shape of the gospel. And the second is that 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah wrote a once-for-all solution to the problem of sin. You see, because God has given us extraordinary reasons to believe the gospel, we must willingly and humbly live out the gospel for our good and for God's glory. Will you all pray with me? God, there's so much that we've already talked about uh, this morning. And so we want to commit um, uh, Iowa City Church of Christ to you. And as this building is, uh, who knows, being rebuilt or whatever they decide to do with that, God, we commit that congregation to you. We pray for their gathering this morning, uh, that it would be lit, uh, that, that they wouldn't uh, need a building in order to experience uh, the fire, the true fire from the Holy Spirit this morning. Uh, and I pray, God, that, that that gathering would be so filled with your presence. Help us to be uh, your hands and feet to that congregation in whatever way you would connect the dots. And we do pray for our community, God, in the midst of all uh, that um, has been uh, decided and, and the way that people are reacting this week. And we pray, God, that the gospel would be an anchor to hold us down, that we would be able to care for people uh, no matter if they agree with us or disagree with us, uh, that we would show your compassion and your sympathy and that we would truly value each and every human being we interact with as created in the image of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all. Uh, so here's where we're going to start this morning. 700 years before Jesus came onto the scene, Isaiah wrote clearly of the shape of the gospel. Before I even talk about what I mean by the shape of the gospel, I just want to introduce you uh, to a dude that I feel like is my friend, but I've never really met him. Uh, his name's Paul Miller. Okay, uh, Paul Miller is a dude that I first got acquainted with when I read his book uh, called A Praying Life. Okay, anybody read that one? Okay, I feel like I know this guy's life really well, uh, and I know him really well because I know about his daughter and I know about his family. I mean, like he's really open uh, with his story in his books. Okay, uh, I read this one a couple of times, and the second time I read it was a part of the elder development process. And when we read a praying life, uh, the thing that we would do right after we would read books in the elder development process, the first thing we'd say is like what we thought of these books. Okay, uh, this one was ten out of ten on every one of us when we read it. Okay, I think it is the best book out there on prayer, okay? Uh, I know that I speak in hyperbole a lot, but I really mean that, all right? Um, so that's when I first got uh, acquainted with this dude, Paul Miller. Well, then last summer, right, uh, Doug Schoener put me on a, another book that he re wrote uh, called A Loving Life. And so uh, y'all probably already know this, but uh, this is just me showing you my cheat codes. So when we preached through the book of Ruth last year, A Loving Life is Paul Miller's book through the entire book of Ruth. This book was like a cheat code for me, okay? As a preacher, I would read it and I'd be like, yeah, that's right. You're right, dude. And then I, it would just stir things in my heart. And then that's what I would, you know, bring here. Like, and so A Loving Life then was the place where I got acquainted with this, this shape that we're going to talk about this morning, this J-curve. 
because he wrote uh, in, he talks about it in a loving life a little bit and what sacrificial love looks like and following the, the shape of Jesus' life. But then he wrote an entire book called The J-Curve. Okay, and so if uh, you were one of those people that put your hand up, you're like, yep, I'm going to read this one now because you know how good his books are. Uh, I'm saying I might start in a prayer life, in a praying life if I was you, okay? Uh, but like this J-curve one, if you're going through hard things, this is the place uh, to spend your time, okay, right now. Uh, because in it, we see what I'm going to call this morning the shape of the gospel, so this is what, you know those little things on the back of a book where it tells you about the book, you know? Like, so this is what it says on the back of that book, y'all. It says, life's inconveniences, disappointments, and trials can leave us confused, cynical, and eventually bitter. Anybody? Uh-huh. Little amen there, right? But the Apostle Paul lays out the process of dying and rising with Jesus, what Paul Miller calls the J-curve as the normal Christian life. The J-curve maps the ups and downs of Christian life onto the story of Jesus. It grounds our journeys, not in some abstract idea, but in union with Christ, his work, and his work of love. Understanding our lives in light of the J-curve roots our hope, centers our love, and tethers our faith to Christ. So for the sake of this morning, I'm going to be referring to the J-curve as the shape of the gospel, Jesus dying and rising again. And I think we're going to see this shape as clear as a rainbow in the sky after it rained as we look at Isaiah 52 and 53 together. So look at what the Gospel Transformation Bible says, just even as we start off this morning, about this chunk of Scripture. It says, sometimes called the fifth gospel... This fourth servant song, there's servant songs throughout Isaiah's prophecies. This fourth one beautifully and movingly portrays a remnant vicariously suffering on behalf of others, yet this remnant's narrowed down to one. He is an individual who is exalted through humiliation. Okay, so that's the shape. That's what we're talking about this morning is this idea of, of being exalted, right? At the end you go up, but exalted through humiliation, so see it with me in the text, okay? Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 13 of Isaiah 52. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Notice that the prophet tells us that the suffering servant, the Messiah, will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. But I want you to notice how he gets there this morning. In verses uh, one and two of Isaiah, it talks about that he's not going to look so great. Uh, and then in verse three, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, the suffering servant, he's going to be exalted, but the path to exaltation includes being despised, rejected, pressed, afflicted, and eventually death before that exaltation would come about. Look at verse 8. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Keep in mind, after all that, the suffering servant, uh, Isaiah prophesies, he's going to be exalted, 
right? We can't miss what it says at the beginning of this song. But the way there is going to be through the J curve. Harvard City, I think some theologians call this the fifth gospel because in it we see the shape of the gospel painted so vividly. You see, here we see a prophecy written 700 years before Jesus stepped foot on earth about the suffering servant, about the Messiah who is exalted through humiliation. His, think about what it says about his presence in his, uh, the way that he looks. He's not going to be attractive, right? He, he's not going to be, we're not going to be drawn to him because he's smoking hot. Rather, through his willingness to go through fires of suffering and death for the sake of others, we're going to be drawn to him. It's not going to be from his outward attractiveness. It's going to be through what he's gone through on our behalf. Few passages in the Old Testament out there draw for us the shape of the person and work of Jesus so vividly. You see, we know now through the New Testament that these verses help the disciples make significance, make sense, sorry, of the significance of Jesus' death. And I believe that they can help us make sense of the inconveniences, disappointments, and trials in our life as well. Y'all, But we're going to look at the New Testament now to see the verification because if he is indeed verified as a messenger from God and this is indeed verified as a message sent from God, then we need to know how to live in light of this. Amen? So here's what the New Testament says to verify the shape of the gospel the way that Isaiah talked about it. Philippians 2, 1 to 10 sounds a lot like this shape. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Harvest City, 700 years before Jesus stepped foot on earth, We could have read about the prophet Isaiah preaching about the shape of the gospel that we see here in the book of Philippians. This that we just read is verification that Jesus Christ is indeed this suffering servant who was humiliated and died. And then what we know from the New Testament rose again in exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. But this text also helps us to do what Paul Miller directs us to do in his book, and it's to understand our lives in light of the shape of the gospel, in light of this J-curve. So think about this with me. If it is true that Jesus was exalted through humiliation, 
then what it says here in Philippians is good for us to live in light of. Jesus humbly counted us as more significant than himself so that we would consider others more significant than ourselves. Amen? Think about this with me. Jesus walked this J-curve. He was exalted through humiliation, and he did that so that those of us who are in Christ might humbly consider those around us. We might humbly consider our spouse. We might humbly consider our children. We might humbly consider our neighbors. We might humbly consider our coworkers. We might humbly consider those that believe different things about our political beliefs than we do. That we would put their needs before our own. This is what it looks like to walk in this J-curve. This is the opposite of selfish ambition, this text says. This is putting the needs of others before our own. And this is almost impossible to do apart from our identity in Christ. And getting our story caught up in the suffering servant's story, which just happens to have a very distinct shape to it. The second thing that we see in this passage that verifies Isaiah 52 and 53 is that Jesus, although he was fully God, he emptied himself, it's called kenosis theory, took on the form of a servant so that we would take on the identity of his servants in this world. Church, Jesus truly walked this J-curve. I think so many of us want to believe that Jesus went straight from his time here on earth right up there to the right hand of the Father, right? But the truth is that Jesus suffered, that Jesus went through so much that he was humiliated on the way up to his exaltation. He didn't go straight from a baby in a manger to the king of kings and lord of lords. Along the way, he made a lifelong journey in the form of a servant. And he did that so that those of us who are in Christ might understand his purposes and align with him. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And living out this identity of servant is not always easy, but God has given us his spirit to help us repent of serving other masters and return to serving him. Have you thought about this? Serving's a lot like worship, right? Like I'll tell, I'll say, I'll tell you this all the time. Worship, uh, we all worship. No matter who in our city, everybody worships. It's just a matter of where we aim it. Serving's like that, okay? We all serve some master. It's just a matter of what master we bow down to and serve. Right? Some of us uh, serve our master money, and we do that uh, with our spending and our saving. Right? We, we serve our master security by saving and piling it up. We serve our master of our like, uh, material needs and our comfort uh, by just buying and buying and buying. But Jesus says something altogether different. He says, I've given you money so that you might be generous and serve others and me. Right? Like, it's just a matter of where we aim our serving. Some of us serve comfort by making sure that there's always time in our schedule for me so that I might have my me time and, and that I might be comfortable. But Jesus came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so that we might find our identity in him and take on the identity of servants and use our time to honor God, serve God in all of our minutes of all of our days, and to serve others for His glory and our good. 
And some of us uh, serve the approval of others by holding back in conversations, right? Like It's like we get in the midst of a conversation with somebody, and we're not quite sure what they would think about us if we were to drop this seed, and we were to plant this seed of the gospel right here in this conversation. I'm talking at a natural spot in the conversation, too, okay? I'm not talking about some where you strong-armed somebody into a conversation about the gospel. I'm talking just these easy opportunities where all you got to do is just drop this little seed and say the name of Jesus in a conversation. Some of us just serve the approval of others instead of living that out and like serving God by making a defense for the hope that we have in Christ in season and out of season. So those are a couple of things we see about how we live out this verified message. But there's a third one that we see in this text, and it's that Jesus obeyed to the point of death so that we would obey him even when it's costly. Okay, in, in Isaiah 52 and 53, the way that it talks about it over and over and over again is that our sin was put or laid on him. Jesus literally obeyed his father to the point of death on a cross, living out this J-curve so that when he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done, we would say, God, not my will but your will be done. You see, Jesus trusted his father. Jesus obeyed his father, and that obedience cost him his life. But that obedience was also the path to exaltation for Jesus. It was on the other side of that obedience that Jesus was highly exalted at the right hand of his father. Harvest City, if our lives are hidden with Christ, if what the prophet Isaiah told us in this message is really true, then I believe that we have been given extraordinary reasons to understand our lives in light of the shape of the gospel. That means he's not called us to live this upward trajectory, easy life. It's just you and me on the way to heaven. He's called us to live a life that would be exalted, but it would be through humiliation. He's called us to humbly uh, serve, to obey him in a costly manner, and to sacrificially love others in a way that he would be exalted, so that we too would be exalted in becoming more like him, and that one day we would get to reign with him in glory. So the second thing that I want to see, the second extraordinary reason that I want to take a look at this morning is that 700 years before Jesus stepped foot on this earth, he gave us a once for all solution to the problem of sin, okay? This isn't something he just came up with one morning when a, when a baby was born in Bethlehem. I don't even know if he was born in the morning, y'all, okay? But uh, it wasn't just something he came up with that day. He had been thinking about this for a while. So let's talk about this. One thing that we know for sure in the gospel is that Jesus is a great savior. Uh, but the second thing that we know for sure in the gospel is that sin is the greatest problem in the world. Mike did a great job making this point last week. Our God is holy and we are not. In order to be reconciled to him, to be in right relationship with him, something has got to be done about the problem of sin. The Bible says it in a lot of different ways, right? In uh, Romans 3.10, it says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Okay, I'm pretty sure that includes you, me, and everybody. 
Not one, okay? Uh, another way that it says it in Romans 3.23 is that all have sinned. Not just some, not just a few. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In our text, right, in Isaiah 53 this morning, I already said this, it says, all we like sheep, catching the main theme here, all, okay? All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We do what we want to do, not what God wants us to do. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, that's just a big word for sin, of us all so the biggest problem in the world is sin we are all indicted and what we see here in isaiah 53 is that god's solution to the problem of sin was that the suffering servant would hear it now be pierced crushed wounded oppressed afflicted and ultimately killed for the sin, transgression, and iniquity of his people. Here in the text, read, read Isaiah 53, 4-6 with me. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Y'all, 700 years before Jesus' time, it was prophesied that an innocent one would bear the sins of other people. 700 years before the Messiah was born in a manger in, manger in Bethlehem, it was foretold that the suffering servant would step in and take the punishment for the sins of a remnant of God's people with no support or understanding for the, one that he was for the ones that he was dying for. We did not understand what he was doing. In the words of Stuart Townsend, who wrote this song, How Deep the Father's Love, it says, Behold a man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders... Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Harvest City, one of the reasons, one of the things that I think makes Isaiah 53 such an extraordinary reason to believe the good news of the gospel is because I know myself to be a part of the problem, right? I know it was my sin that held him there. It wasn't just like some generic sin. It wasn't just the sin of all these people. But I know personally that it was necessary for God to sacrifice his one and only son on the cross because of the heinous nature of my sin. In Isaiah 51, or I mean in Psalm 51, David says it this way, that against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. Clearly he had sinned horizontally against other people. But he thought of his sin uh, before God. He took, he took personal, like he, he held the personal ownership and weight of it. This is what Paul says in the New Testament. If we were to look at people historically uh, through which the gospel has resonated and made a big impact through their lives, what we would see is that they would sing the songs of that, or the, that they would sing along with that song, that it was my sin that held him there, Right? Think about what Paul says. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. 
He calls himself less than the least of all God's people. Y'all, one of the things that has rang true throughout history for Christians in this way is that we understand the truth of Isaiah 53. That it was my sin that held him there. That our sin was laid on him. That that was the reason that he had to die on the cross. But at the same time, what we see in Isaiah 53 is this really beautiful truth that we've got to hold hand in hand. It's kind of a tension. And it's that not only was it my sin that held him there, but it was also God's will to crush him. Look at Isaiah 53, 7 to 10. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Don't have time to get there today, but look at the end of John and you'll see a rich man's grave. I tell you what, that's a prophecy right there, but I don't have time to preach it. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Harvest City, our Messiah knows all too well what it means to be wrongly condemned. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was taken away. He was, he was not taken away rightly, but by oppression and judgment. Not for his own sin, but for the transgression of others. You see, just as important as it is to grasp in one hand this truth that it was our sin that held him there, is to grasp in the other hand the truth that it was God's will. It was God's divine purpose for the oppression of the suffering servant to die in our place. You see, what we see in this text is that God did not only allow this, but God is understood to be an active agent. The scripture says he was smitten by God. The scripture says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What happened wasn't some unfortunate tragedy, but formed the center of the divine plan for the redemption of God's people in the world. Y'all, this comes back to this whole story is about Jesus and his plan to lay his life down for us. Harvest City, this prophecy, like so many other texts we've looked at this year, brings us back to the heart of the grand story of redemption. You see, if it was my sin that held him there, but at the same time, it was God's will to sacrifice his son for the forgiveness of my sin, then what do we do with that truth? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to believe that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God sacrificed not just for the sin of the world, but for our sin, right? It's, it's personalizing the gospel. It's believing that he died for my sins. I think for the first 18 years of my life, I did an okay job at like in my mind intellectually assenting to this idea that Jesus was like God, that he was a part of the Trinity and that he died sometime. 
But it was when I was 19 years old at a conference in Minnesota with my dad that that gospel dropped from my head to my heart and that I understood that the things that I had been doing, the way that I had been living, uh, the very decisions that I made day by day were sinful and flying in the face of a holy God. And that I needed to own that that sin spit in his face. And that, the, that it wasn't just true that Jesus did that, but that Jesus did that for my sin. That it was my sin that held him there. And second, it's not just about believing, right? But Jesus endured a lot so that we might be saved. And that's the primary truth of this passage. But in Jesus, we also see an example of how to suffer. Right? Two things I want us to notice is that Jesus didn't open his mouth and that Jesus was willing. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. It says it twice. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Y'all, I think it's incredible that God the Father willingly sacrificed His one and only Son, but I think it is equally as incredible that Jesus, the Son of God, willingly went to the cross. That He laid down His life for us. That it wasn't taken from Him, it says in John 10, but that He laid it down for us. In the midst of oppression and affliction, the suffering servant was likened to a lamb an innocent lamb who willingly and submissively was led to the slaughter. Church, one of the most amazing things about the gospel is that not only was it the will of God the Father to sacrifice His one and only Son, but at the same time, the Son willingly laid down His life. I wonder if it was our Father's will to have us live through this global pandemic, if it was our Father's will for us to endure a few years of extreme division, and at the same time, if it was God's will for us to endure so many struggles in our own personal mental health and other things, if it was God's will for us to go through the things that we've been through over the last couple of years, well, what would come out of our mouths? Could it be said of us multiple times, like it was said of Jesus, that we didn't open our mouths? Or would it be said of us that we complained and we gossiped, and we slandered others around us. And would we willingly go through whatever circumstances God put in our path so that we could become more like Jesus? Would we have his heartbeat when he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done? Because the truth is, if you're a Christian this morning, then God's number one purpose in your life, it's not your happiness. It's your holiness. This means that God will do whatever it takes to shape us and form us to become more like His Son, even if that means turning up the heat a little bit, even if it means working bad things together for good to bring about His purposes in our lives. Because the solution to our sin problem was a guilt or a sin offering. See it in the text. Look at verse 10 with me. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. 
That's the guilt offering. See it in verse 10. He, his soul makes an offering for guilt. But think, think about this. It's not just a guilt offering. It's also a sin offering. Verses 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, in this passage, the suffering servant is directly said to be a guilt offering like the ones made in the temple that Kyle was telling us all about with that beautiful diagram a couple of weeks ago. In, in this text, it's also alluded to that he was not only an offering for our guilt, but he was an offering for our sin. For our, it uses all the words you could about sin, right? For our, for our transgressions, for our iniquities, and for our sin, they were all laid on him. And just in case you don't feel like Isaiah has been verified as a messenger from God based on the fulfillment of this, let me give you two more passages that help us to see how this came through true in Jesus. John 1.29, when, when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he sees Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Our city, the truth is that every one of us has sinned and that because of that, we were to be put on trial before a holy God. And if, uh, if we ourselves were to go up there in and of our own we would be found guilty as charged and sentenced to an eternity separated from God. But the good news of this, even the fifth gospel, okay? If we, four wasn't enough for you and you needed a fifth one written 700 years before Jesus was ever even born, the good news of this fifth gospel is that Jesus died as a sin offering. That he was sacrificed for your sin so that you, through his paying the penalty and his death in your place could be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life and forgiveness. The good news of this fifth gospel is that not only did he pay the price for your sin, but he dealt with your guilt. So if you still feel like you're carrying the guilt of that today and you feel like, man, it was my sin that held him there, you, you don't have to feel guilty any longer, but you can celebrate, you can rejoice that that sin was nailed to the cross, that Jesus paid the once for all penalty for your sin, and that instead of being guilty, you can experience grace and forgiveness in Christ. No longer do you have to carry that weight because he bore it on your behalf. And the good news of this fifth gospel, did you hear it here in uh, verse 12, or verse, yeah, I think it's verse 12 about righteousness? No, verse 11, sorry. Is that by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Y'all, that's good news. Because in order to spend eternity with God in heaven, uh, in order to be with the holy God and a righteous God for all of eternity, we have to be deemed righteous. And the good news of this fifth gospel is even though you and I weren't righteous, that's not how we live our lives. We are not perfect and we are not righteous. That Jesus, the suffering servant, took our sins uh, on that cross, paid the penalty for them, and that his righteous life, by faith in him, on the, on the accounting books of God, we will be accounted for as righteous because of the righteous life that Jesus lived and our sin will be put on his account and that he paid that in full on the cross. 
Y'all, the good news of Isaiah 52 and 53 this morning is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so come back to that CIA story with me this morning as we land the plane. I don't know about y'all, but I'd be incredibly impressed if any one of us could remember even half of the six things that I said you'd have to do if you were to get back into uh, to the U.S. via Mexico, right? How much more then should we be impressed when we see the fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies written hundreds of years in the past by many prophets as extraordinary reasons to believe the good news of the gospel. And if that's true, if that hits home with us, then wouldn't we want to live in line with not only the good news of the gospel, but the shape of the gospel, no matter how much it cost us? Because suffering and dying as the Lamb of God in our place cost Jesus so much more than it will ever cost us in this life. Y'all, we got to remember that it was my sin that held him there. But at the same time, it was the will of God to offer his one and only son as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And it was the will of his son to willingly and submissively lay his life down because he loved you so much. And it's this good news that should compel each and every one of us to live each and every moment of our lives for his glory. Y'all, one of the best reminders of the good news of the gospel is found in this rhythm that we call uh, communion. It's this sacrament that we partake of each and every week. And this is what I have to say about that this morning. Our Lord Jesus gave thanks on the day that he instituted this sacrament. He broke the bread and he gave thanks. And as he was thankful at the Last Supper for the Passover for the provision of his people of a perfect lamb and the lamb's blood shed for their sins. So we now give thanks for this, our perpetual Passover meal, for the ultimate lamb of God, the Lord Jesus himself, who shed his blood so that we through faith might claim it as our protection and as our provision. Family, this is a day to give thanks. This is a time to give thanks. This is a meal at which to give thanks. To give thanks for Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. To give thanks to the Son of God who feeds us even now through this supreme sacrifice. So this morning I would invite everyone who professes its sincere faith in Christ and all those who live according to his word and with a clear conscience to join me in partaking of this Thanksgiving meal. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's exalted, right? And he calls us through partaking of this sacrament to commune with him. And through his bread in the cup, he calls us to remember and proclaim his death until he comes to make his enemies his footstool. So I ask those here this morning who love the Lord Jesus to entrust in his atoning death and find refuge in his eternal priesthood to respond with me in thankfulness as we receive the Lord's Supper together. So one of the ways that you can respond to the Word of God preached this morning is to come up the center aisle to receive the elements uh, and to return back uh, to your seats receiving this meal with thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for you. Another way uh, will be just to simply stand uh, and sing from the bottom of your hearts 
at the top of your lungs, rejoicing in what he has done for us. Uh, and the last would be, if you just want somebody to pray for you, uh, we have people in the back each week uh, just to offer uh, a word of prayer for you, to lay their hand on you, to uh, remind you of God's love for you. Uh, even if you need somebody, a little nudge this morning, uh, just to help you remember that your sin has been laid on him. You don't need to feel guilty anymore, but you can stand confident in Christ. You'll have an opportunity uh, to do that as well. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that your son willingly and submissively did not open his mouth but was led like a lamb to the slaughter to lay down his life for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you, Jesus, that you loved us enough to endure that. Thank you, Father, that you loved us so much that you were willing to put your son through the chastisement, through the piercing, through the affliction and the oppression, through the crushing, so that by his wounds we might be healed. God, help us to hold on to the gospel with all that we have this morning, trusting that you have done everything necessary to forgive us of our sin and trusting at the same time that you will continue to do everything necessary to make us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. No matter what circumstances we're going through, God, would our lives look like the shape of the gospel that we would trust if we're in the bottom of that J-curve this morning, that we will be exalted with you. We need only cling to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.